This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me today are the Toledo Symphony's Artistic Administrator and Principal Second Violin, Merwin Sue. And we have a special guest with us, actually two special guests. We have the Symphony's Director of Education, Rachel Zeithamel, and we're also joined in the studio by Mercedes Diaz, who is a student at Bowling Green State University, a doctoral student, a conductor, and also my intern. So, Mercedes, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. You you are going through the gauntlet, as it were. All the interns that come through WGTE have to make an appearance on the program. So, mm-hmm. I know you don't really know what we're going to talk about today, but... We just brought you along for the ride. Is that okay? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> I just found out I had to be here. So, yeah, <laughs> completely unprepared. We promise. Well, then join the club. <laughs> it's our style. So uh, before we get started here, congratulations are in order to Rachel. Rachel, you were named as an emerging leader by the League of American Orchestras. That is a pretty big honor. Tell us about that. Um, oh, my goodness. Well, I had my our first little mini conference in New York was... Um, last weekend. And it was just amazing. I'm with a group of people from all over the country. There's 12 of us. And just hearing the different ideas of the orchestra and and figuring out where we want to take the orchestra in the next, you know, decade or so has been just really exciting. I'm I'm honored to be able to do it and take all the skills I'm learning and bring them back here to Toledo. So how how many folks were you up against? Do you know that? Um, We do not know. We just, they, they, they yeah. will not tell us. They just say that it was highly competitive and they had the most applicants that they've ever had. Well, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who want to get in on that program. So mm-hmm. pretty great, huh? What do you think of that, Merwin? I think she needs walk-up music now. <laughs> I think right. that when you are when you get to be named to the Emerging Leaders Program, you need special music. There we All go. All right. <laughs> This feels like somebody else's walk on music. Well, you know, this is like the generic disco beat that we have going on. I usually use it for quizzes, but we'll reappropriate it today for Rachel. I don't know. I think generic disco, I think Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We'll give you a little... Yeah, that's better. I love it. That's better. All these people cheering for me as I dance. (laughs) All right. Way to go, Rachel. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so the reason that Rachel is here is because we're going to be talking about a very special concert, which is happening November 8th. That's tomorrow night, as a matter of fact, at the Toledo Museum of Art Paris style. There are two of these concerts. They're in the morning, right? Yes. Tell, tell us uh, what's on the program, what this is all about. Uh, so it's part of our Young People's Concert Series. Uh, we're doing Ellis Island um, by Peter Boyer. And we have a concert at 9.45 and one at 11. And generally, it's geared towards children, you know, ages kindergarten through high school. But we do have adults that come, um, some residents from local nursing homes. It's a really great piece that doesn't necessarily just appeal to young people. Yeah. Peter Boyer. Now, that's a composer who has done a lot of like film work, right? Or he's done a lot of orchestrating, that sort of thing. Can you tell us a little bit about him? I know he worked with uh, Michael Giacconi, the um, the Disney film scorer. Yeah. And he's done a lot of orchestrations. And I'm sorry, suddenly the first name of Newman is escaping me. <laughs> well, there are several Newmans. Yes, there's Thomas the film- Newman. There's Alfred Newman. It's probably... There's uh, Newman from Seinfeld. <laughs> there's... Uh, take your pick. Well, whichever one is the Hollywood composer. <laughs> um, he, he's done a lot of orchestrations for that. But I know that um, I'm not actually sure whether it's the 9.45 a.m. or the 11 a.m. performance, but that is actually going to be the 200th performance of Ellis Island. Wow. So that's pretty exciting. Yay! 
Fantastic. <laughs> so he's re- written a really wonderful work that's just gotten a lot of excitement across the United States. So now this is a work that it's not just the orchestra playing. Are you doing like anything with actors and narration and that sort of thing? We have two actors coming in. Um, one is Jennifer Lake. Um, she'll be doing all of the female parts, and somebody who may be familiar to WGTE listeners, Kari Marshall, oh, will yeah. be um, performing the male roles. I've heard of Kari. He's our Morning Edition host for people that don't know, just in case you only listen to Toledo Symphony Lab. We, <laughs> we also offer other programs as well. Now, Mercedes, you are from Spain. You know about Ellis Island and the whole story of yes. immigration here. Yes, yeah. I, I know of it. We don't have that anymore. That doesn't work like that anymore. Yeah, it's don't. a slightly different process <laughs> these days for yes. you to get in on that. It is a very, very constantly changing, ever-evolving process. Yeah. Now, tell us about uh, young people's concerts in, in general and the educational philosophy of TSO, because it's not just like giving lessons to kids. You do so much in the way of bringing them in, having them perform with other symphony people in sort of a mentorship position. It goes above and beyond just the the typical student-teacher relationship. Rachel, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so we do a lot um, in the education program. And that's one thing that I'm really proud of, Toledo, Um, talking to other orchestras and going through all the different programs that we have. I mean, even like big orchestras like Cleveland is impressed by what we're doing. They're like, we don't even try to do that much. So Toledo has something that's really great. Um, Our young people's concerts in general are... Uh, they adhere to Ohio learning standards. Um, we have a wonderful teacher in the community who puts together their teacher guides so that the the teachers know exactly how to, to make the lessons applicable to their classroom, um, whether it's the music teacher or just, you know, the average fourth grade teacher. And we'll get, you know, 1,500 students at both of the concerts on the 8th, which is really exciting mm-hmm. um, because we get they get to see the orchestra pretty up close and personal for a lot of them it's their first time being in the peristyle which is fun to watch them come in and just like be in awe of what they're seeing and a really great experience positive perhaps first experience with the orchestra what we're offering with young people's concerts where is the audience coming from all over and I'm not trying to be vague, but we have um, homeschool groups from Michigan from even from Indiana Mm. um Public schools from Michigan up near Detroit are coming down for us. Some schools from Beachy. Um, we have some TPS schools that are able to come due to uh, some funding that we received. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, it's a really great program. We did this program in 2014. And it is still one that the teachers request when we get the surveys back at the end of the concert. They're like, remember that Ellis Island program a couple years ago? We loved it. Bring it back. Yeah. And so we're able to bring it back this year, which is awesome. And uh, Pacific Symphony just redesigned the piece uh, that was premiered on June 30th of this year. Mm -hmm. So all new visuals. So during the concert, in addition to the orchestra and the actors, we have um, pictures that are going to be just photos from Ellis Island that are going to be projected. So it's a wonderful educational experience for Mm -hmm. all those kids as well. I'm wondering, I mean, do you have any idea or any... Uh, data, for lack of a better word, on on what these kids take back with them as far as music goes? Do you hear from teachers about uh, the kids' engagement with the the music side? 
Well, I think there's a lot of different things that we get back. One of the great, greatest things that we get back are these um, letters from students. And that's just one of the most wonderful things that we get is the chance to read letters from students who say, I really love the very honest ones. Like, Mm -hmm. wow, I really liked that piece. And I hated that piece. That piece was really boring. (laughs) But this piece was really great. And oh, my gosh, there were steel drums on this one. That was exciting. You know, Um, and just when those reactions are completely unfiltered. And those are those are the best. best That's what the adult audience is thinking. But they're just too uh, kind to say it. Well, it's wonderful that the teachers encourage that sort of really direct response. And it really helps us. It it helps us to get that sort of feedback. And we do get a lot of that feedback and there's binders and binders of these letters <laughs> and then there's off of course all of these different surveys and i think one of the things that's it's it's really hard to differentiate between correlation and causation mm. but as we've increased so many of our educational efforts as rachel has taken the toledo symphony school of music and really made this something significantly greater than just again like offering a few lessons now it's this kind of um much greater community-wide outreach attempt. And we're just seeing more and more students in our kind of higher performance ends of things, like our Toledo Symphony Youth Orchestras had a record number of applicants. Mm-hmm. And again, we we can't prove that this is because of increased educational offerings. We just know that there are more students involved in the performing and in taking lessons and in the youth orchestras. And we know that we started increasing those educational activities a few years ago, and hopefully those are bearing fruit. Yeah. And um, even in our, our Masterwork series concerts and the Mozart in the Afternoon concerts, um, there are younger people, there are high school people attending, and, and even younger, and they're enjoying themselves. So we really are, we're building the audience of the future. It's, it's, it's a long road, but we're getting there. Yeah. Do you have any, do any favorite letters come to mind? Anything you can think of that uh, some kids have said that, that sticks in your mind? Oh my goodness. It would be really <laughs> hard to pick just one. Well, just make one up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like when the younger kids um, draw the instruments. Because oh. uh, <laughs> it's always fun to guess what they are. Um <laughs> A bassoonophone, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Right. I think one a really great experience that one of the the teachers had from a small school right outside of Fremont. They used this as an opportunity to um, to take a field trip with the kids. They all got really really dressed up, and then on their way back from the concert, they stopped at this little tea shop on their way home, and they had um, a lesson in manners and etiquette. And so it was this whole day event, and it was just so sweet. And she, the kids just loved it, and they asked if they could do it again and again. So. And I wow. remember, um, because you don't ever really think of Toledo as having high buildings, per se, but there was, there was this one letter that said, I have never seen a building that had more than four stories before. Oh. And that was just eye-opening, you know, because yeah. this, is, this is not a, you know, th- these were not particularly disadvantaged kids. Mm-hmm. It's just kids who've had, you know, limited experiences and they drove into Toledo and saw their first building that was higher than four stories and you were it took my breath away just yeah. to know that you know these are kids who who come may have come to our Christmas concerts and haven't seen something like that yeah that's great mm-hmm. well talk a little bit about the actual experience for the kids I mean and how they act when they're in the concerts because I remember many moons ago when I sang with New York City Opera we went out and, and did a few performances of Carmen 
with uh, kids' audiences, right? And they were cheering and screaming during the opera. And, I mean, what's, what's the kind of reaction do you get in-house from these audiences? I uh, think that we do a really great job of um, – we offer a lot of different things. And the audience has always been very respectful. Uh, we'll do – We'll have parts of the concert where there is. There is the cheering and the yelling and the audience participation. But, for instance, last February when we did an Underground Railroad theme, I mean, they were, those kids, they were just engaged. They were still, they were listening, hanging mm-hmm. on to every word. Yeah, yeah, and that's part of your feedback right there, just to see how they're acting in in the actual performances. And I think this has been one of the things that we've been challenging ourselves a little bit more the last couple of concerts is that you were talking about issues that matter. Um, Mm -hmm. Issues like the issue of immigration. This is something that touches every American and everybody who is seeing these concerts in some way is impacted by this. And one of the things that I think we figured out is that symphonic music helps us talk about these issues in a meaningful manner. And I think that's something that, you know, when you can reach 1,500 eight to 12 year olds and, you know, talk about something real, that's really important. Yeah. So now these concerts, they're not open to the public or can somebody just show up if they want to see this? We do have a limited availability for the 11 o'clock concert. Our 945 is is pretty close to being okay. sold out. Um, but they can call the box office and the box at two, four, six, eight thousand. Good. Uh-huh. I'm glad you said it. I always forget that number for some reason. <laughs> and um, we can we can definitely help because it's a great program and it's a good piece of music. And I think that's what we kind of forget. It's actually a very good piece of music, too. Yeah. I know that folks that are maybe interested in this piece, you can go online and, uh, you know, search for it. You can find all kinds of stuff about Peter Boyer and uh, Ellis Island, The Dream of America. Now, we're talking about education and learning about Ellis Island, so I have an Ellis Island quiz. Of course you do. I want to jump into that, (sighs) test our knowledge, discover some fun facts about Ellis Island. So this is multiple choice, so it's not a big deal if you you don't get it right. But this is, uh, Mercedes does this, right? Isn't this part of the intern's (laughs) job to answer these questions? I'm going to have (laughs) (laughs) It's open to you, Mercedes. I thought it was for the educational. (laughs) You're right. I think this is entirely for Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're the director of education, right? (laughs) And community engagement, all of that. Yep, yep, okay. Which I I guess means that normally you don't actually have to take any of these. You just have to give them. Right. So this is is, is kind of a nice thing. I worked hours on this quiz, so you're all going to take it. (laughs) We're all going to take it. Sounds good. All of you are taking it. Okay, here we go. Question number one. Before it was called Ellis Island, it was known as... A, Gibbet Island, B, Amity Island, or C, Dragon Roost Island? The second one. You're choosing B, Amity Island? I think so. No. What was A? Like Giblet Island or something? (laughs) (laughs) Gibbet Island. Island. Are you going to take A and I'll I'll, take C? Okay, I'll take A. Yay! It's A, Gibbet Island. Yay! Amity Island, number two, that was actually from the film Jaws. And the last one, Dragon Roost Island, was from The Legend of Zelda. So Ooh. Gibbet Island, <laughs> it was called Gibbet Island, not not Giblet Island. <laughs> <laughs> Gibbet Island, a gibbet is like a, a gallows or like a yeah. big pole that they would hang. So they used to hang pirates on that island. 
yeah. as opposed to like the little inner internal organs of turkeys or chickens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, five minutes on question one. Question number yep. two. Gibbet Island became known as Ellis Island during the American Revolution, and it was named after A, Mayor Samuel Ellis, B, Fisherman Samuel Ellis, or C, Tavern Owner Samuel Ellis. Which is it, A, B, or C? Was he a mayor, a fisherman, or a tavern owner? This feels kind of like one of your trick question, all of the above. No, not all of the above. Although that was a good choice, (laughs) but not quite right. What do you say, Rachel? You Uh, still have three to choose from. Mayor, fisherman, or tavern? Fisherman. Uh, No, that's that's wrong. Mercedes? You want to flip a coin? You have a 50-50 chance Uh, now. A? The mayor? Nobody got it. So he was a tavern owner. He actually owned a tavern for fishermen <laughs> on on his island. So right? I get the other half of it at that point. Oh, More or less. I think that yeah. makes sense. Okay. So his family uh, sold it to the U.S. government in 1808 for $10,000, which would be one hundred ninety five grand now. Mm-hmm. That, it's pretty impressive that we had three people. There were three question, three possible answers, and we went over three. <laughs> Okay. I, I think we all deserve a round of applause yeah. for that. <laughs> way, way to go. There you go. So, when was the first federal immigration law enacted in the U.S.? Was it 1820, 1860, or 1890? The very first federal immigration law. 1890. That sounds right to me, too. <laughs> what do you think, Mercedes? Ooh. I was going to say also 1890. No, it's 1820, wow. the, the first yeah. law. But it only had one requirement, and what was that requirement? The only requirement listed in that first law was, A, immigrants must have at least $18 to their name, B, all ships have to keep a list of their passengers, or C, immigrants must be in good health. Good health. A, B, or C. You say C. Yeah, I'm I, sure. I just don't have the heart, but here uh, we go. No, I feel like, – I'll so, take B. I was going to take B. Can we fight over B? You're taking B? Well, it, rock, scissors, paper is not compelling right now. <laughs> <laughs> it was B. All the ships had to keep a list of passengers, although yeah. they did not check names yeah. when people came off. Um, eventually, they started adding more and more requirements. So actually, everything that I said there was a requirement by uh, 1890. Mm. Uh, folks had to be in good health. They also had to have at least $18 in their pocket to get in the country. Wow. Yeah. So what year saw the most immigrants pass through Ellis Island? Was it 1907, <laughs> 1921, or 1924? Now think about world history events. 1907, 1921, or 1924? Is this an Irish potato famine question? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Was, well, the potato famine was a little bit that's before. Yeah, I that's know the answer. Go for it. 1907. That's right. It's like the one fact How'd I you know. How'd you know that? 1,004,756 passed through in 1907. Around the First World War, saw a big influx of uh, immigrants. And, and during the Second World War, it turned more into a detention center because mm-hmm. Ellis Island became like a place to identify who needed to be sequestered or sent back, mm-hmm. one or the other. So, yeah, 1907. Uh, what mayor, this is a good one, what mayor of New York City was on staff at one time at Ellis Island? Was it Fiorello LaGuardia? Was it John Lindsay? Or was it Ed Koch? One of those three actually wow. was no on staff at Ellis Island. But because I just got back from New York and I saw his statue everywhere, I'm going to go with LaGuardia. You're right. 
Fiorella LaGuardia. Wow. Oh. That emerging leaders program <laughs> yeah. is paying off. <laughs> now we now we can see why she was selected. Right? Absolutely. Um, he was actually a, a translator. He worked as a translator there mm-hmm. because he could speak Italian, Croatian, and Yiddish. And he would translate for immigrants wow. that were coming in. The very first person to be processed at Ellis Island, this was in 1892. I think I know this one, too. Was... Okay. No, we can do this. Was an right? Irish teenager named Annie Moore, oh. a Russian horse trader named Isor Danielovich, or a Dutch actress named Kathleen Van Heemstra? It was Annie Moore. I, mm-hmm. Annie Moore. Yeah, I guess that was an, an easy one. There's a statue of her, I think, there. Annie Moore, yeah. Isor Danielovich was uh, actually the real name of Kirk Douglas, and uh, Kathleen Van Heemstra was actually the real name of um, Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, see? Very cool. We're learning all kinds of things. I've immediately forgotten those two other names, though. (laughs) (laughs) Educational. (laughs) Now, what state state is Ellis Island in? Is it New York, New Jersey, or both? I'll go with New York. I'm sorry, but you're wrong. (laughs) Well, it is in New York. But the answer is both. Okay. Wow. Half is in New York, half is in New Jersey. Because they kept adding to it and, you know, with landfill to the uh-huh. island, expanded it. And they expanded their way into a, a different state. So the Ellis Island Immigrant Hospital, built in 1902, was considered cutting edge at the time. Which of these were actual features of the hospital? Rounded corners, separate sinks for spitting and washing, or sterilized mattresses? I'm going to go with the separate sinks. That's not the complete answer. This is now's your chance, Merwin. Okay, this is an all of the above one. <laughs> yes. Rounded all, corners. Rounded wow. corners. Wow. Above. Yeah, they had rounded corners because they believed that uh, actual corners harbored disease that germs mm-hmm. would gather and collect in the corners. It's bad feng shui too. Yeah. <laughs> So if you look at pictures of the hospital, all the corridors are like round and it, it's a pavilion style um, uh, building. Wow. Okay. So whose work inspired these cutting edge design features? Was it John Harvey Kellogg? Was it Florence Nightingale? Or was it Joseph Lister? And it's not all of the above. I can tell you that. I'm totally going to just guess. Go for it. I'm going to go guess. for Lister. Oh, uh, close. I'll, okay. I'll take Florence Nightingale. Yay, Florence Nightingale. No, I wasn't keeping track. Mercedes, did you keep track? Who won that uh, quiz? I no. think Rachel. You weren't won even the paying quiz. attention. Rachel. I think Rachel won the quiz. I think. I, I think, think she. I think Rachel. Yeah, yeah, she had. She had a commanding lead at one point. <laughs> yeah. give you a little Thank, bit you. Of applause Thank you. There. Okay. Well, let's talk about uh, education in Spain because we have a Spanish musician here. Uh, Mercedes, first tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a little background. And then uh, we, I want to talk a little bit about uh, education. Well, I'm a conductor. You already said that. I'm finishing my doctorate in Bowling Green. Um, before that, I studied in Cincinnati, where I did master's also in conducting, and at Bard College in New York. So I've been actually here in this country for almost 10 years, yeah. I have to say, yeah. Um, but before, of course, I, I studied and worked in Spain, so the system is completely different. Actually, all over Europe, the uh, music education system is very different. It's more specialized from from an early age in in Europe. When, when you say specialized, do you mean how w- do you mean? 
So children can go to conservatories since they are uh, seven or eight, and they can have free education there, free music education, in addition to their um, school. So that's what I did, and that's what most people do there. But but also there are many differences because uh, everything is subsidized by the government. Right. Um, What was the situation for you? I mean, did you have a single experience or a person or a family member who got you into music or did they just say you're a good musician you're going to go to this conservatory what was your path well i started dancing when i was three years old and i guess i mean that i can't remember anything about that so i guess that was my mom who took me to dance i i hated that part but i loved the music so when i was seven um there was the possibility that I would go to this school of music, which is the conservatory, elementary conservatory of music or of ballet, of mm-hmm. classical dance. And of course, I said, no, no classical dance for me. I'm not doing that. So, But I love the music. So, so my yeah. mom took me there. Why, why didn't you want to dance? Why I didn't? Because I was uh, chubby. <laughs> 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 because I... I Hey, I'm know. chubby and I still dance. <laughs> well, I do too. Classically. <laughs> you should see my flamenco, you know, once we, we get started. Well, they were very, they were actually very tough. I remember that, you know, all the stretches were just awful. I was, it was not for me. Yeah. I was, I was too young. I was a kid. Now and you I, just exercise your arms as a conductor, right? Yeah. No, now I exercise more than I did as a kid, but yeah. no. So yeah. I'm wondering how, so first students who choose not to go into any conservatory program at that particular age, like you said, seven or seven or eight, mm-hmm. is there, first of all, what's the music education like for students who don't go into that program? Is it oh. like all or nothing, or is there still a very high level of education in music outside of that? Actually, well, in the schools, they have a general music education. Oh, okay. So they all have some, they all okay. have to go through some, some. classes. Great. I don't, I think they play um, recorder and maybe uh-huh. some percussion instrument. I think the level actually kazoo, has gone, gone up. Kazoo, perhaps. Kazoo. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know the kazoo story. Go ahead. No, I don't know. Do they, uh-huh. do they have kazoos in the schools in, in I, Spain? I don't know where they are. Yeah? Okay, well then probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. Professionally. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I basically answered the question. Yeah. I mean, that, that's... If you want to learn to play an instrument to a higher degree, mm-hmm. you have to go somewhere else. You don't really get to do that in public uh, schools in general, mm-hmm. in general education. So do you have that, do you get a chance to kind of enter a conservatory later in life? Or is it basically if you haven't decided by that age or if you don't show the affinity by that age? Because I think one of the things that's amazing in in this area is basically the first experience that many students will have in this area is around fourth grade. So that's much older. So mm-hmm. like if you're if you say are a really good oboe player or French horn player, something that's a much harder instrument to pick up on when you're young, is there any way to, you know, kind of get into a conservatory program like when you're older? Can you be a late bloomer? Yeah. Uh, yes, although it's true. It's uh, the the way it's uh, built. The system is harder. Uh. I mean, you can later access because it's divided in three different levels. You okay. know, the elementary conservatory, the middle professional conservatory, and the 
and then what would be the equivalent to the university mm -hmm. here. So, okay. so you can access to the any of those different levels at any time. Okay, you know, do it, but you have to have, yeah, previous experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, you then you have to find. Yeah, uh, you private to find it. private lessons and you get to catch up. Yes, with everybody else. But that, that's true everywhere. I think, Absolutely right. Well, this concert again, Ellis Island: The Dream of America. It's at the Toledo Museum of Art Peristyle, uh, happening tomorrow morning, November eighth, nine forty-five a.m. and eleven o'clock a.m. Two four six eight thousand. That's the four one nine area code or ToledoSymphony.com. My thanks to Merwin Sue, Rachel Zeithamel, and also Mercedes Diaz for joining us today. This program is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony. You can download episodes of this program as a podcast by going to our website at wgte.org lab. You can also subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice, including Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. I'm Brad Cresswell, and this has been Toledo Symphony Lab on FM 91.